This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today, we're looking at something that we see almost every day, and that's cellulitis. Around 6 million patients present to the ED every year for cellulitis or an abscess. The annual incidence of cellulitis is anywhere between 22 to 50 per 1,000 persons. There are over 15 million cases in the United States every year. However, less than 10% of these patients with cellulitis will ultimately be admitted. Admission and disease severity are much greater in patients over the age of 55 years. Overall, cellulitis is more prevalent in males with a mean age of around 45 years. There are a variety of different factors associated with cellulitis. Edema secondary to impaired lymphatic drainage or venous insufficiency, obesity, skin inflammation associated with eczema, radiation therapy, skin trauma due to abrasions, lacerations, or ulcers, immunosuppression, and then really any pre-existing skin condition. There are a variety of different pathogens that can result in cellulitis. By far the most common microbe is beta-hemolytic streptococci. Subtype A is the most common. This is followed by Staphylococcus aureus, which is found in anywhere between 14 to 27% of cases. MRSA is present in less than 4% of non-purulent cellulitis cases. Also, gram-negative bacilli are very rarely the predominant cause of cellulitis. There are some special at-risk populations that we need to think about. The first one are immunocompromised patients. These patients are at risk for a broader range of pathogens, including Pseudomonas, Clostridium species, Pneumococcus, and Meningococcus. Patients who have undergone mastectomy with either a partial or a full axillary lymph node dissection and then also breast irradiation can develop lymphedema, which can lead to recurrent cellulitis. Coronary artery bypass with harvesting of the saphenous vein can also result in lymphatic disruption and edema. If you have a patient who's been exposed to salt water and they develop cellulitis, you need to think about Vibrio vulnificus. Finally, in the setting of an animal or a human bite, think about Pasharella and capnocytophagia. The underlying pathophysiology is pretty simple. Cellulitis develops when bacteria enter through a break in the skin, like a cut, an insect bite, or an IV drug injection site. Bacteria then result in local inflammation and the release of cytokines, which leads to infiltration of lymphocytes and macrophages. Before you know it, you have the classic signs of cellulitis. For your history, you need to think about the initial symptoms, how they've progressed, ask about the presence of trauma, prior soft tissue infections, and look for those predisposing factors that we talked about. On physical exam, most patients with cellulitis will present with pain, warmth, edema, tenderness, and erythema. Erythema and induration also typically have poor demarcation and usually develop over several days. The lower extremities are the most common location affected, and the limb involvement can be circumferential. There are a couple simple exam maneuvers that we can use to help us differentiate true cellulitis from some other etiologies of erythema. 
One of these is the passive leg raise. During this test, the patient lies horizontally on the bed and the leg is manually elevated to a 45 degree angle or higher. Hold the leg for one to two minutes while looking for any improvement in the erythema. If the erythema starts to improve or get less, then that suggests against cellulitis. Also keep in mind that bilateral lower extremity cellulitis is very rare. If you see a patient, they have bilateral swelling and redness, then think about some non-infectious etiologies. These include chronic stasis dermatitis, DVT, heart failure, venous stasis, and lymphedema. If you see evidence of fluctuance, that suggests an abscess, not non-purulent cellulitis. Petechiae, vesicles, hemorrhage, and bullae may be present, but if that patient has those signs with severe pain that's out of proportion to exam, you need to think about a necrotizing soft tissue infection. Patients may also present with fever, chills, lymphadenopathy, malaise, headache, and nausea and vomiting. When it comes to the ED evaluation of the patient with cellulitis, if they otherwise look well and you have a confirmed clinical diagnosis, then you really don't need lab work. If there is concern for sepsis or septic shock, then you'll want to obtain blood work. In most cases, the lab findings will be nonspecific. Up to 50% of cases will have leukocytosis. If you've obtained inflammatory markers, they might be elevated in anywhere between 50 to 90% of cases. Procalcitonin has also been looked at as a potential biomarker to distinguish between cellulitis and mimics, but the literature suggests it's not ready for prime time. Routine blood cultures are typically low yield and they're not recommended by the IDSA. A meta-analysis found that less than 8% of blood cultures among patients with cellulitis were positive, and most of these grew bugs that we already knew about, so they didn't change management. Blood cultures might be helpful in that patient with severe symptoms and septic shock, or that patient who's at risk for atypical organisms. The IDSA also does not recommend obtaining routine skin swabs of cellulitis or infected ulcers. Ultrasound can help you here. This might show soft tissue edema or cobblestoning of the subcutaneous fat. Also, it can help you differentiate between cellulitis and the presence of an abscess. If you're concerned about a necrotizing soft tissue infection, then you'll probably need more advanced imaging like CT, but your first step should be to speak with your surgical colleagues. Cellulitis can be tough to differentiate from some other conditions and it has a high rate of misdiagnosis. One study found that over 30% of patients were misdiagnosed with cellulitis in the ED. Of those who were misdiagnosed, over 85% had an unnecessary hospital admission, and over 92% received unnecessary antibiotics. We'll have a separate podcast that looks at these specific mimics and how you can tell them from cellulitis. There is a mnemonic that can help lead you towards a diagnosis of cellulitis versus another mimic. We'll have a table in the show notes with this mnemonic, but real quick, this consists of cellulitis history, edema, local warmth, lymphangitis, unilateral, leukocytosis, injury, tender, instant onset, and finally systemic symptoms. There's also a meta-analysis that looked at different findings associated with cellulitis on the history and the exam. Previous cellulitis had an odds ratio of over 40. 
the presence of a wound on the leg had an odds ratio of over 19, a current leg ulcer had an odds ratio of 13.7, and lymphedema or chronic leg edema had an odds ratio of 6.8. There are some others, but we'll list these in the show notes. The treatment of choice for cellulitis is antibiotics. Even with the increasing prevalence of MRSA among abscesses, the vast majority of cases of uncomplicated cellulitis can be treated with narrow-spectrum antibiotics. The IDSA recommends most cases of non-purulent cellulitis be treated with acephalosporin, penicillin VK, dicloxacillin, or clindamycin. This is where the recommendation for cephalexin 500 mg PO four times daily comes from. If the patient has a severe penicillin allergy like anaphylaxis, then you can use clindamycin 450 mg PO three times per day. You do want to base your antibiotic choices on your local antibiogram and sensitivities. Treatment duration usually lasts anywhere between 5 to 10 days. There are data showing that 5 days is just as effective as 10 days, and a shorter course is probably the way to go. Now, what about IV versus PO therapy? For the most part, PO medications have very high bioavailability. The vast majority of patients that we see in the ED only need PO antibiotics. They don't even need an IV dose before they're discharged. However, there are some situations where you should think about IV administration. These include the patient who is PO intolerant or the patient with septic shock. In that case, you need to get antibiotics on board as soon as you can. Also think about IV administration in that patient where you're concerned about a necrotizing soft tissue infection. There are several other medication classes that can potentially help these patients. The first one is an NSAID. Data suggests faster resolution of symptoms with NSAIDs, so if the patient has no contraindications, then give them a prescription for something like ibuprofen. The second medication class are steroids. There unfortunately are a lot of issues with some of the studies looking at steroids. For example, several of these trials excluded patients with diabetes or peptic ulcer disease, so there's potential risks with adverse events when you give the patient a steroid. Based on the current literature, I'm not a big fan of routinely using steroids, but again, I do like to prescribe NSAIDs if there's no contraindications. Make sure to also tell the patient to keep the affected extremity elevated, which can help with reduction in swelling and pain. There are several important risk factors for treatment failure. This is defined as hospitalization, a change in class of oral antibiotic, or the need to switch to IV therapy after 48 to 72 hours of therapy on their oral antibiotic. Some of these factors are fever at triage, chronic leg ulcers, chronic edema or lymphedema, prior cellulitis in the same area, or just cellulitis in the past 12 months, a history of MRSA, tachypnea at triage, and cellulitis at a wound site. Most of these patients can be discharged. Make sure to tell them that they need to take the entire course of the prescribed antibiotic, and they can use NSAIDs and acetaminophen for pain relief. The other important aspect is you need to tell the patient that that redness and the infection may not get any better and may even get a little bit worse over those first 48 hours on the oral antibiotics. That's completely expected. 
However, if you don't tell the patient this, they're going to return saying that the antibiotics don't work. After that 48 to 72 hours, then the redness should start improving. If they have worsening symptoms or systemic symptoms after that 48 to 72 hours, then you need to think about a true treatment failure. Of course, there are some patients who will need to be admitted. Several of these indications for admission include an outpatient treatment failure, a significant comorbidity like immunocompromised state or poorly controlled diabetes, sepsis or septic shock, a significant hand, face, or genitalia infection, concern for a social situation and poor compliance, and then another reason for IV therapy. Let's go over some key points. Remember, cellulitis is a soft tissue infection that's primarily associated with streptococcal species. The lower extremities are most commonly affected. Look for warmth, tenderness, and erythema. Most patients who look well and you have a clinical diagnosis of cellulitis won't need any blood work. A five-day course of PO antibiotics will be efficacious in the majority of patients. Make sure to tell the patient about the warmth and the erythema not improving for that first 48 hours on the oral antibiotics. If they begin to feel worse and that warmth and erythema spreads after that point, then they need to return for another evaluation. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. Mm-hmm.